It's my prayer this morning that as we look to what Peter says, that we would continue that love, that we would excel still more within our fellowship. So with that in mind, turn with me to chapter 1 and verse 22. I think that's my phone. Please forgive me in Christian love. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We're in that section of... Chapter 1, where Peter has made a transition from the doctrine that he's been teaching to the practical outworking and the practical realities that need to follow from the amazing new birth that we have been given. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that we, that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Born again into a living hope. By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we're in this section of obedience, of the practical outworking of theology, and we come to verses 22 to 25. We're going to see three things this morning, three things within this text which speak to us of this issue of living a life of love. We're going to see love, the result of our salvation, love, the responsibility of our salvation, and God's word, the means of our salvation. Firstly, love, the reward or rather, sorry, the result of our salvation. The result of our salvation. That's verse 22a, where Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now that's just part of a sentence, but that is an important uh, beginning foundation for what Peter is going to write soon. The word brotherly love there is a translation of One of the New Testament words for love, Philadelphia, or filio love. If you add Adelphia onto the end, you've got love of the brothers or love of the brethren. So Philadelphia, city in the east side of um, America, obviously, but literally means love of the brethren. It's used in Hebrews 13 verse 1, where the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who he was, though some... I think it may have been Paul, some Apollos, some even Barnabas. I don't know. I don't think anyone does really know. Well, no in glory. Praise the Lord. But he writes at the end of that wonderful epistle, simply these words, Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. It's the same word. Philadelphia, let this phileo love continue. First Thessalonians 4, 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, same word, you have no need... For anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's interesting, in that very same verse, you've got filio love and agape love. First part, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to 
agape one another. So there is a distinction between the two words, but they are closely linked together. And we're going to see that Peter does that in verse 22 as well. The reality is that when we came to Christ, God enabled us to love. He enabled us to love in both those ways, with a brotherly love towards other believers and agape love towards all people. So what's the difference? Well, brotherly love, the Philadelphia-type love, is like a warm-hearted affection for God's people, other Christians. Agape love refers to that, perhaps the highest of loves, whereby unconditionally we're called upon to love people, regardless of whether we get anything back. It's a self-sacrificing love, which extends itself, strains itself on behalf of others. This is John 3.16 love. For God so loved the world, agape. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. A greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life. He gives of himself. That's agape love. And we as Christians, when we came to Christ, are now enabled to love in the way that God calls us to. Romans 5 verse 4 simply says that God's love has been shed abroad in our what? hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been give, given to us. And that's what Peter is saying there. If you just look at verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, whatever the purification which came by our obedience to the truth is it created a sincere brotherly love. It produced that. And I want to suggest to you, when Peter is writing here about obedience to the truth, he's talking about our obedience, our obedient response to the gospel. It's talking about when we came to Christ, our souls were purified by God in such a way that because our sin was dealt with and our hearts were changed, we then could have love spring out from within as the natural course. So that when you came to Christ, you not only were forgiven of your sins, but a principle of love for other Christians was begun in your life. And that is a spiritual reality. And notice the... Um, notice the... Uh, Adjective he uses there for brotherly love, sincere, can be translated unfeigned or unhypocritical. In other words, the result of you being in Christ is now, as a natural course, is that you have an unhypocritical love for other believers. That is the result of our salvation. And uh, Paul, in other places in the New Testament, uh, speaks of two things going hand in hand. Number one, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then love for all the saints. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In other words, that was a mark of their genuine faith, because not only was their faith real, it showed itself, because they then naturally had this love for other believers. Part of the family of God. 
If God is my father and he is your father, we're part of the same family and there is a spiritual bond between us. It's unhypocritical and I would, I would also suggest to you on the basis of what Paul says in Colossians 1.4, having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you had toward all the saints, this is a brotherly affection, a Philadelphia type love which extends to all believers regardless of their background, regardless of their state in society. Remember in the New Testament there would have been slave and free sitting in the same pew if they had pews, worshipping together. There were perhaps, there obviously were different nationalities. There would be a Jew and there would be a Gentile. Can you imagine? There would be Samaritans and there would be Jews within the same body of Christ. And as a result of salvation, they're one in Christ and there is this brotherly love which flows naturally, crossing whatever barrier in humanness would separate people. And praise, praise God for that. Um, that is to say, and I'm just so thankful within our church that we have people from different countries have come and joined with us and... Um, we reflect that love, don't we? There may be differences, but in Christ there is this brotherly love that um, that extends. You say, what about this uh, phrase here? Purified your souls by obedience to the truth. I, I believe he's there speaking about the obedient response we had to the gospel. You say, how so? You go to Second Thessalonians, verse 1. Sorry, Second Thessalonians 1 verse 8, it says that in a coming day when Jesus Christ returns in judgment, that he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel is something not only to believe, but something to obey. We're called upon to, remember Peter in the Philippian jailer, that moment when he was about in desperation to take his life, he cried out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul is in the imperative mode. He says, believe, command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent. Come to Christ. The gospel was in the command mode. And so these people who are scattered when they, throughout modern-day Turkey here, when they came to Christ, when they obeyed the gospel, they believed, they repented of their sins, there was within them self a purification, their souls were purified from sin for a sincere brotherly love. That was the result of their salvation. Romans 6, verse 15, speaks in similar terms to Peter here with regard to this obeying the truth as a response to salvation. Romans 6, verse 15 it says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's the obvious answer. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to what, death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, 
you have become slaves of righteousness. He's talking about their salvation. They were slaves to sin. They obeyed the form of teaching to which they were instructed. That is the gospel. And they were set free from sin in that moment. And it's Peter saying, when you did that, the result was that you had a sincere brotherly love for other believers. Now both this filio love and agape love are evidence of our salvation. And if I could be pastoral for a little bit, um, here, have you ever struggled with doubting your salvation like me? Particularly when I was at university back in the 90s. Uh, brought up in a Christian home, and I don't know how many times I must have invited Jesus Christ into my life over a hundred times. Seen a few smiles out there. You understand what I'm saying. And just the, um, just the difficulty and the struggle of not knowing whether you really belong to God and you want to. And not knowing that if you were to die today, where you'd be. Um, and so there's part of part of my heart which has a real empathy for people who go through that, and and you're not alone. You're not alone because many people in church history have recorded their struggles and doubts in that regard. John Bunyan, for one. But the Word of God offers confirming realities to look for in your life to confirm the reality of your saving faith. The Apostle John wrote a whole book on it, the book of First John, right? These things I write unto you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life right now in the present time. And one of the marvelous evidences, one of the marvelous uh, realities whereby if you can see it in your life, love this type of love, it's an evidence that you truly belong to God. So what do you mean? Well, it's just a few verses to note down, maybe. First John three fourteen. very simple. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You can know that you've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life because you have a love for other believers. See, this is not natural for an unbeliever to love Christians. This isn't natural um, because you, you've got two different natures. You've got a sinful nature and you've got a new nature. You've got people who have values and longings after righteousness and heaven and love for Christ and love for truth and commitment to truth compared to those who naturally, in their humanness, do not. And so John writes, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in, in death. First John 4 verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And chapter 4 verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now obviously there is um, there is a natural affection that an unbeliever and a respect can have for a believer. But what John is speaking about here is this um, divine love which is alone shed abroad in the believer's heart. And if there are, you can see that within your life, it is one of the evidences that you really have been born again and you have had your soul purified by your obedience to the gospel. Acts chapter 15 verse 9 says, With regard to the Gentiles who had become believers, Peter speaking, said, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's only a believer who's had his heart cleansed that can love this way. Now, I'd follow that up with this um, qualification that even in the Christian life, your love can be hindered. Sin can erode away once again. Even though your heart was initially purified in salvation, if we allow sin in our life, our love is going to go down as well. Jesus said in the, in the day to come, in the last times, that because of the abundance of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Because an increase in wickedness, your love, the love of many will grow cold. So when we entertain sin within our life, we can expect, we can guarantee it, that the output of our love toward other believers is going to be affected. First Timothy chapter five, verse, sorry, chapter one, verse five says this: the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See that? Paul's whole reason for writing 1 Timothy was to show them, was so that there would be love produced among them, and he knew that that came from a pure heart. Paul said to Timothy in in the second Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a, a pure so love the result of our salvation if you if you want to pray and, and talk more about that issue of assurance of salvation I'd be only too happy to pray with you and uh, point you to some good resources that um, have really helped me you can know that you're a Christian 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about making our calling and election well, sure how do I know I'm one of the elect? Read Second Peter 1. It talks about some of those evidences whereby you can know that you're one of God's. Secondly, love, not just the result of our salvation, but also the responsibility of our salvation. The responsibility of our salvation. In the second part of verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure He says, you do have a sincere filio love for your brethren. Now, here's a command. Because you have love, use it. Show it. Demonstrate it in your life. Um, Love earnestly. It's an interesting word. The word means to love strainingly, if there's such a word. It's a love which strains to the uttermost to love. A love that stretches, that's literally the idea within the word. 
When Peter says, love one another earnestly, that's the word, to stretch to love from a pure heart. It's a command. This is sacrificial love to the nth degree where it's required. How important this is in a Christian marriage, right? How important this is in Christian family, in parenting, where you are stretched to the nth degree many times to to respond in love. Um, here, Peter is saying within the body of Christ, you are to love with this kind of love. To love eagerly, fervently, constantly, earnestly with this agape type love. He uses the same uh, word earnestly here in chapter 4 verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and here it's used as an adjective, since love covers a multitude of sins. So later on in chapter 4, he says the same thing again. This is difficult, but because we have divine resources, because we have everything we need for life and godliness, Second Peter chapter 1, we can love this way. We're called to love this way. The reasons he gives follow in verse 23. Since you have been born again, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. And once again, we see this idea of being born again, chapter 1, verse 3. He talked, to, talked about that God caused us to be born again. Here, he says that we have been caused to be born again. And we're reminded of John 3, don't we? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night time. He's the teacher of Israel. He's important, religious, one of the most important religious men in Israel. And he needs to understand that for all his religiosity, he needs, still needs to be born again. Born from above. Peter says, you have been born again. And this is therefore is a a reason for the command I've just given you. And once again, you see this pattern throughout First Peter in this practical section where it says, you have been born again, therefore live this way. Chapter 1, verse 13, he said, verse 14, as obedient children, in other words, this is what you are by nature, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is who you are in Christ, you're an obedient child, therefore live it out. You've been saved, verse 22, You've purified your souls by obedience to the truth. You've got a brotherly love. Now demonstrate it. Live your life. A life of love. He's calling believers to live in accord with their new life in Christ. Display your the reality of your salvation. Display the reality of the new nature you've been given by being born from above. And then thirdly, he speaks of God's word, the means of our salvation. The means of our salvation, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is like seed. It's God's seed. It's living and active. Remember Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce even between the soul 
in spirit, joints and marrow. It's powerful, it's penetrating, but it's living. And as such, it's life-giving. The Word of God brings new life, doesn't it? In the Gospel, it is the kernel of God's truth that when mixed with a heart of faith, produces eternal life. The sower in the soil parable that Jesus gave, this farmer went out to sow the seed, right? And it landed on different types of soil, but when it found good ground, it produced a crop. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. The crop of righteousness. Among, among that, obviously, love as well. Springing up, the gospel is powerful. It's living and active. And it's imperishable seed. It's imperishable. Even um, I was reading just on Wikipedia about Masada. I did a little bit of study on that after watching a documentary this week on you know, the time in the 70s AD when the Sakari, uh, the rebels against Rome, held out almost a thousand of them there, there on top of Masada, the mountain. Incidentally, in the Old Testament, like Psalm 91, when it speaks of uh, when the psalmist is saying, my, my rock and my fortress, it's the word Masada. Okay? And, and they named this place Masada because it is naturally this type of fortress. And um, the account by Josephus records what happened in that encounter with the Romans and these Jews, rebels to the nation, Rome. But one interesting side note was that there was a seed apparently found um, which dated back to that time and it was still able to be germinated um, in the 20th century. They, they took it and it actually germinated. It's pretty somewhow imperishable seed, right? It lasted a long time, but it, it's obviously not imperishable in the same sense that Peter is speaking of here, God's word, it's imperishable. Martin Luther wrote a little poem for feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God and naught else is worth believing. He said, though all my heart should feel condemned for want, want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever, for though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand. Forever, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's word is more permanent than the universe. Than the sun, the moon, the stars, this earth, this terra firma, God's word is more permanent than that. Why? Because it's eternal, it's imperishable, you cannot destroy it. And through the years of church history, how many people have tried to destroy God's word to eradicate it from their culture. William Tyndale tried to, well, he translated the Bible into his native tongue, right? And um, he was burned at the stake for doing it and get this by the religious authorities of the day. John Wycliffe, the same, labored that the people might have the word of God in their language. And he died of natural, a natural death, but many years after he died, out of spite and hatred for what he had done and seeking to put the word of God in the hands of the common people in their own language, they dug up his bones and burned them and then scattered them in one of the rivers in England. Religious people 
much on a par with the Pharisees and teachers of the law of their day who, for all their reverence for the law of God, really didn't have a real love for it. But despite those persecutions and despite, even back in the Old Testament, I remember one of the kings, he took the words of the prophet and he cut pieces of it and he put it in the fire. Remember that? And judgment fell upon him. But God's word has survived through the centuries and in his providence and in his grace, he has enabled his word to flourish. It's imperishable seed. And it's still producing life all around the world today. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm not ashamed of it. You can take me to Rome. You can take me anywhere, Athens, or these centers of wonderful learning, human um, intellect, and so forth, and I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. Because for all the human wisdom of the world and all these fancy philosophies and ideologies which were then a part of that uh, Greek culture of the day, Roman culture and the Greek culture revived, the gospel is the only thing that can bring new life. You can't use a synthetic seed in order to produce life. We need to remember that in our evangelism. There's only one thing that will bring new life. The means towards salvation that needs to be shared is the gospel. Not gimmicks, not some other synthetic seed which is more appealing to the natural tendencies of the natural um, heart of man. People might respond to your synthetic message, but they won't get saved. So preach the gospel. Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. People must hear a specific statement. The word word there is the word rima, radio rima. That comes from the New Testament. Two words for word in the New Testament, logos and rima. You say, what's the difference? Well, generally speaking, logos refers to the entire word of God. Rima is where you take the specific statement and apply it to the specific situation or temptation you're facing with as a Christian. And that's what you have in Ephesians 6, verse 19, where he talks about take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the word there is Rema. It doesn't do you any good just to be able to open your Bible at any specific passage to face your specific temptation. You need a specific statement that matches to your trial in order to defend yourself or in order to make the attack on the issue you're discussing with someone and rest, rest them from the kingdom of darkness using the sword of the Spirit. Christian, you have in your hand an amazing resource in the Word of God. Do you know it? Do you use it? Do you understand that this is unlike any other book? The gospel is imperishable seed. There's nothing else like it. Through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40. This is 6 to 8. He quotes from there and he says, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. I looked up that little phrase at the end um, where it says remains forever. And there's a specific four words in the original, and I just did a little search on that, and I went back to the Old Testament, to the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and exactly the same. Um, and it was used in Psalms of a few things. Uh, Psalm 111 verse 3, Full of splendor and majesty is God's work, and his righteousness endures forever. Speaking of God's righteousness, same phrase. It endures forever, or it remains forever. Psalm 111 verse 10, it says his praise endures forever. Psalm 117 verse 2 says the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And so when he quotes from Isaiah, he's using the same phrase. The word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter closes in verse 25 saying, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word that you heard in the gospel, when you believed it, it purified your heart. So that the result of you receiving the gospel was that you had a sincere, unfeigned, unhypocritical, brotherly love for other Christians. Now, in response to your salvation, love one another deeply, earnestly. It's your responsibility. And understand that it all came about from God's word. If you just look into um, chapter 2 there, he carries on this theme. Uh, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, those are things that attack the love that we have for one another, aren't they? If we're to have an unhypocritical love, then we've got to put aside hypocrisy from our life. Envy. Slander. These are things that attack Christian fellowship at the heart. Malice. It's a word for all general evil, all deceit. Lying to one another. Verse 2, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk. What's what's he talking about? The word of God. Long for it. Purify your heart again so that there's a longing within you. Why? So that you may grow up into your salvation. It's my prayer that at River City Bible Church that we would grow in love, that the fellowship that we have among one another would be deep, This characterized by this type of self-sacrificing love. I know it is at work in our congregation and like Paul I would say to my own heart and to each one of us here let's continue to do that. Let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Amen? We want to be a church that preaches the truth but we want to be a church as well that um, is characterized by love. And so when we have visitors come and join us they experience our love experience this warm-hearted affection. And if it's not there, we know the reason it's not, right? We know that within our own individual lives, perhaps we've allowed sin together. And we come back to the cross and we ask him to purify our life that we might be what he wants us to be. First John 3 verse 18 says, Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. 
It's easy to talk love. It's harder to live it. Pray with me. I just want to borrow a prayer today from the book I have. and Pray with me. The prayer says, Oh my Savior, help me. I'm so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I'm in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I'm pained by a graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in, my, in, in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I'm blind while light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes and grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, to meditate on thee, to gaze on thee, to sit like Mary at thy feet, lean like John on thy breast, appeal like Peter to thy love, and count like Paul all things rubbish. O God, give me increase and progress and grace, so that there may be a more decision in my character, more vigor, in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the Creator. O Father, let not faith cease from seeking Thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, Thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Father, to that end, I pray, to that prayer I add, Lord, that You would help us as a church to continue to grow in love, Thank you, you've produced us within us. Help us to live it out. Forgive us, Lord, for times when we haven't shown this kind of love. Help us to see the blind spots we have, Lord, within our marriages, our family, with our children, toward brothers and sisters, Lord, within the church. We pray these things, Lord, and Jesus' precious name, thanking you for your grace, which picks us up, Lord, even after failure. Gives us the strength, makes us sufficient in you. We praise you and thank you, Lord, and we pray for these uh, young young ones, Lord, today, who's hearing your imperishable word of God in Sunday school. For the teachers who week by week, Lord, will be preparing to share this word with them. May it find root in their life. I'd encourage these teachers, Lord, and that you'd work your will in each and every heart. We pray in Jesus' name.